For those who don't know, which I'm realizing, early in a ministry season, it's probably better not to take for granted that people actually know who it is that's standing on stage. My name is Ben. I'm the Connections and Care Pastor around here, and uh, Auburn has been my home church for something like four or five years now. Those who have been around a little longer will know that I've had quite the complicated love affair with this church. Especially the elders have had a pretty good glimpse of that over the years. I first was introduced to Auburn Bible Chapel when I was a student at Trent University. And a number of my friends came to this church. And I think uh, in terms of my formal interactions with the church, the first thing that people here started to realize was that I was uh, a bit aggressive about my opinions sometimes because I was uh, opposing the church leaders here uh, in a decision they were making to plant a church on campus at the time. That's another story, and (laughs) I'm glad to say that was a thing of the past pretty quickly when I realized God was convicting me that I needed to lead differently, and, and God really did use the church plant to do something amazing on campus. After that point in time, I graduated university, was feeling called to go into ministry, and I got talking to the lead pastor here, who was leading at the time, and he actually asked me to come consider being a youth pastor in this church. And so I spent... Uh, a year and a half, two years, being a youth pastor alongside Jordan Stockdale, who is the current youth pastor. We worked together part-time. He looked after the junior youth and most of the programming. I looked after the teaching. And after two years, I up and quit. And uh, it was a bit of a shocker for some of the people who were in leadership here. Uh, And uh, I'm going to explain a little bit more about some of what went on there. But the truth is, I quit positively. I quit just because I felt like God was telling me to. And after about six months of helping transition and make sure Jordan was taking over as the full-time youth pastor, we left for another city, moved to Cambridge. And we spent a year there in Cambridge, and it was quite the journey for us. And then a year later, here are Ben and Shoshana showing up on the front doors of the church again, starting to serve at Trent University. And six months after that, taking on a role as a Connections and Care Pastor. So, I think anybody who's been watching at a distance, or even maybe not so much at a distance, is kind of going, wait a minute, what just happened there? Ben left, he had finished his time as a a pastor here, he moved to another city, and then suddenly he's back. And one of the questions that comes up the most often is, well, why Cambridge then? Okay, we get that you're involved in this community, and that God's using you in this city, and that you seem seem to think this is the ministry doors that you're supposed to take at this point in time. But then why, why leave? Why quit? Why move away? What was the whole story there? And on an earthly level, on a human level, I'll admit, it really doesn't make much sense. Because we didn't find a job there. We didn't do well financially there. We, 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 in fact, as a family, sometimes it was pretty trying to be together there. It's not like we felt like it was a perfect, wonderful oasis in Cambridge or something like that. No, it was a tough time. On a human level, it made very little sense. But we felt God was calling us there. And in retrospect, we can really see why it was that he wanted us to go to Cambridge. But it all depends on there actually being a God. You see, actually Kendra summed it up well for me recently. She texted me and said, Ben, do you know why you went to Cambridge? And I said, yeah, I think I do. And she said, okay, because God's been telling me in my prayer time that you went to learn that you were an obedient son. And I thought, yeah, 
Yeah, that summarizes it really well. God took us to Cambridge to learn, A, what it meant to obey him, even when it made no sense. And B, to learn where our identity comes from, as his children. I had to learn that I was his son before I could be in ministry full-time. Because if ministry is my identity, it's going to crush me ultimately. And that was what the better part of the year was spent learning for me. I spent a lot of time grappling with God, saying, God, why aren't I seeing ministry's doors open? And he said, are you willing to just obey me? And are you willing to be my son first and foremost? And a worker in ministry after that? It took me a while, but eventually I came around to saying, okay, I guess you win, God. That's when he opened up doors back here, brought us back from that place to a place where we could start serving again. Through that season, as I grappled with God and he taught me those things, the place that refined me the most, the the action, the activity that refined me the most was prayer. I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in the church and heard a lot about this thing called prayer. But in my experience, people who talked about prayer were kind of one way or the other. They either were really gung-ho and seemed to pray for everybody and anybody, and it was almost their life to be praying. And then there were the rest of us, the ones who knew that prayer was important but really didn't know what to do with that whole idea. People like me often felt like, well, when I look at the Bible and I study it and I read it, I can do that. That's pretty tough at times, but... There's lots of resources out there to help me understand the Bible, and there's lots of interesting things to learn when you're reading the Bible. So that part of the Christian faith, I can get. But sitting alone, quietly, talking to God, it's a stretch. It really makes me feel bored at best and sometimes outright confused and angry because it doesn't feel like anything's happening. The journey to Cambridge and back for me helped me understand the importance of prayer. And it was when I was praying, when I was coming before him, that I really began to feel some of these things happening, learning to obey, learning that I was his son, eventually learning what it meant to do ministry for real. The whole thing actually started off with prayer, in fact. Something happened in the second year I had as a youth pastor here. Right at the beginning of that second ministry year, we were blessed to have our daughter, Aaliyah. She was born on September 13th, right at the beginning of a ministry year, probably the most inconvenient time that a baby can be born. And you see, what God did was he convicted me that if Shoshana was going to be up all night looking after Aaliyah, then the least I could do as a husband was when she woke up at 6 or 7 in the morning, I could get up and look after her, let Shoshana sleep a few more hours. And when you've got a little one-month-old infant in your arms and you're rocking her, there's not a whole lot to do except to think. And as a Christian, if you think long enough, eventually you realize maybe I should not just be thinking, I should be praying. (laughs) 
And so I'd start praying. And God began to grow in me a deep love for spending time with him in the morning, putting my needs before him and and receiving what he had for me during that quiet time with him. That wasn't enough. A year later, he actually, we ended up buying a dog, and that meant that not only did I get up with Aaliyah at 7 in the morning, but I had to get up at 6 to walk the dog. <laughs> so God taught me that prayer, even, even when you're starting to get it, a lot of the time he wants to go even more intense. But what I'd like to do this morning is talk a little bit about the things I learned during that year because I think prayer is an important part of our faith and one that too often seems confusing and frustrating. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read from Matthew 6 this morning. And we're going to look at that passage. And I'm going to share about how I learned certain things from it that correspond with this passage through my journey in Cambridge. But before we open up, why don't we pray and ask God to be speaking to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that we can be honest with one another and with you about the fact that prayer sometimes is hard. It's not easy. And yet, having tasted the fruit of it, having seen how good it is when I'm able to come before you, God, I I just ask that that would be something that everybody here would have a chance to experience. That we would be a a community dedicated to prayer. And that this morning, as we open your word, to Matthew, that you would be speaking through this text to encourage and to stir up this thirst for time spent with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to start off by saying, scripturally, it's crystal clear that we ought to be praying. If there's any doubt in your mind, just look at James 5.16 which tells us explicitly, confess your sins and pray for one another that you might be healed. James, I love that book. He's a wonderful, practical writer. And he gets right to the heart of things. Confess your sins and pray for one another. Do it. It has a positive effect on your life. You're going to be healed from your sins, from your sicknesses. But I read passages like that, My first thought is often, okay, but how? I get that I'm supposed to. I get that it's good, but how? Fortunately for prayer, we actually have an answer to that. There's lots of things in the Bible we don't have a clear answer for exactly how we should do something. But in Matthew 6, 5 to 15, Jesus gives us an answer to that question. His disciples are saying, well, Jesus... We want to know, how are we supposed to pray? And he spells it out in very, very clear terms. I imagine most people here are familiar with the passage. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It really probably should be called the Disciples' Prayer, because Jesus is giving it to the disciples. This is something that he's intending for all of his disciples to be able to take into their lives. It's a big part of our cultural fabric. I actually can't remember it. I'm young enough that I can't remember it. But my understanding is there was a time when every single day the Lord's Prayer was said in schools. I know many older people who lament the loss of that. Certainly I've been part of churches where the Lord's Prayer was said as part of the liturgy 
on a Sunday morning. So there are a few passages that we're as familiar with as the Lord's Prayer. I think there's been a good pushback against more traditional churches that use the Lord's Prayer because sometimes it feels like we're just doing this as a rote thing to do. However, I think we've lost something in that. A lot of the time in the church, we tell people you should be praying. And we've lost the tool that Jesus gave us to do it rather than using it the way it should have been used. When it comes to praying prayers that are given to us from other sources, prayers that aren't something that we ourselves have come up with, my recommendation is use it kind of like a paint by numbers. I think Jesus intended this as something we take and use but not necessarily as a rigid formula. We stick to it word by word, and that's all we say. But instead, it becomes a pretty magnificent springboard in our prayers. This whole passage actually allows us, if we're willing to follow it closely, it allows us to gain insight into what we should be praying when we're spending time with God. I actually, quite often in my prayer walks in the morning, start with this prayer and just use it section by section. And allow God to take my prayers after that and, and, and go into the territory. The heart of this passage, the thing that Matthew 6, 5 to 15 tells us first and foremost, in answering how should we pray, is that we should pray honestly. We should pray honest about who we are, honest about who God is, honest about our needs and honest towards others. Let's walk through the passage and talk about each of those in turn. In verse 5, Jesus starts off saying, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may see, be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The first thing Jesus tells us about prayer is that it's worthless unless we're willing to be honest about our condition about who we are. He points out the religious leaders of his day. And he says, many of these men are going out into public spaces and praying these lofty prayers that make it look like they're very righteous and devout men. He says, don't. Don't even go there. Why not? He says, because they have already received their reward. If you're going to put on a show about prayer, you're going to do it in a way that makes it seem like you're all that in a bag of chips. Then that's your reward. You get to be seen as good in the eyes of people. But is that the reward we want? Jesus says in prayer, there's a much deeper reward to be found. He encourages his disciples in your prayer life, start in the secret places. Start by going into a spot 
where you're just alone with God. That's a scary spot. Because it's a spot where we have no choice but to be honest. When we're in the secret, we don't get to put on airs and allow other people to tell us we're great. We begin to see all of the warts and bumps and ugliness that we are. Jesus says, go away from where the crowds and public values are and get into a spot where you can just come before God as you are. And the reward is that your father will see it. That your father will respond to what it is you're praying. Your father who is sees in secret will reward you. It is one of the worst things in the world when we trade great joy for mediocre joy. And he's saying that's what a lot of people do. They only ever pray when other people are seeing them. They're trading the joy of knowing God is actually listening to me. God is here with me, even though I am ugly, even though I am not up to his standards. And they're trading that for people validating for things that aren't even really true. That's sad. When we pray, the first thing Jesus tells us to do, be willing to be honest about ourselves. Go into a place where you have no choice but to be honest and recognize, I don't really deserve the attention this God is giving me. I don't really deserve the right of being able to pray. And yet he tells us immediately afterwards something that should be incredibly encouraging. He says we also have to be honest about who God is when we pray. He says when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus is referring to the pagan practices that went on in his time. And you've probably seen scenes like it in the movie where, where religious priests and people are coming before these big, massive temples and they're hollering out and maybe they're cutting themselves and they're, they're, they're just making a big show of prayer. Because in the Greek understanding, the gods want nothing to do with human beings. So we have to almost annoy them before we get to a point of being heard. That's actually what the Greeks believed. Jesus says you don't have to do that. You're not heard for the loud noise that you make. You're not heard for the many noise that you make. You don't have to distract God until he finally can't, can't give up on you and gives you what you want. He says, our Father already knows what you need. He's already attentive to you. We have to be honest about what God tells us he is. And God tells us he's like a loving father waiting on their kids, ready to do what will bless them. This is exciting. We start out by being honest about the fact that we're pretty ugly, really. But then we realize that despite that, God is, 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 is hunched over waiting for us to come to him, ready to embrace us with his arms. For me, this is very encouraging. Some of you who know my story know that I didn't really have much of a dad 
growing up. And to realize God's waiting there, expectant. That's exciting for me. This is why the first words of the prayer Jesus gives us are so important. He says, pray then like this. And the first words he asks us to speak, our Father. Is that not exciting to be able to say? You're my Father. You love me even though I don't deserve it. Prayer is living out the gospel. Saying, I'm not worth this. And yet, thanks to Jesus, I can have a Father who loves me dearly. These first two things, they were the heart of what I learned in Cambridge. The reason I left in the first place was because during my prayer time, God was convicting me, Ben, youth ministry isn't all that I have in store for you. You're doing good. That's Jordan's calling. Now I want you to leave it behind and trust me to take you to the next level, where it is that I have in store for you personally. That was hard for me to get at first. Kind of like, okay, God, I, I don't really understand why I can't just, you know, keep on planning and doing what I'm doing and just, you know, make my own decisions. Why do I have to stop and listen to you and do something that seems kind of crazy? And the answer that God gave me in my prayer time over and over again, the thing I couldn't get away from, was, Ben, if you don't depend on me, you're nothing. If you don't depend on me, you're nothing. Your best efforts can't make any difference in this world. So I trusted him. After a year of wrestling with that message, after a year of asking my wife if she was comfortable with that message, which she wasn't at first, but by the end of the year was, we moved to Cambridge. And when we got to Cambridge, I said, okay, God, I get it. I followed you. Now what? Now what? What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to serve? And God said, no, you haven't got it yet. And honestly, one of the most frustrating experiences I had was that when I was out on my prayer walk, every time I said, God, what now? It was like I heard a voice hammering against me. Wait, wait, wait. And I was like, I don't want to wait. (laughs) Why, God? Wait, wait. So I waited. I can't say my prayer experiences have always been that dynamic, but for that season, it was an extended period where I heard God speaking to me clearly, wait. And then he opened up the door through my schooling and other avenues that I began to study a book. It was, it was a book written about the prodigal son, that parable. And I just began to explore the richnesses of God's deep father love for us. And over three or four months, I began to realize, this is what I need more than anything else. Before a job, before any ministry opportunity, I need God. I need to know I'm loved for who I am long before I serve in any sort of way. My trip to Cambridge taught me how to be honest about myself and my limitations. My need to listen to God. And it taught me about how deep his love for me is. Taught me to be honest about how good God really is. 
He goes on to tell us, I think, that we need to be honest about our needs when we pray. There's a little bit of a tension here. I think it's easy to say, well, wait a minute. Jesus just told us God already knows what my needs are. So then why do I, why do I have to be honest about them and ask him for my needs? I don't think there's ever been a better answer to that than what C.S. Lewis gives when his little child Lucy gives a simple answer. I think sometimes he just likes to be asked. Is that not a fatherly thing? For those of you who are parents in this room, is it not a fatherly thing to say, I know what they need, but it's wonderfully gratifying just to have them say it themselves. To come to me and ask so that I can meet their needs in a way that they, they're processing. They know it's from me. And I really believe that's how God works in prayer. He knows what we need, but he's waiting us to get to a place where we know and we ask him too. By his grace, he'll keep on meeting our needs even when we don't ask a lot of the time. However, he wants us to ask. And it's a real joy when you experience answers to prayer. He gives us a list of needs. And this is where the paint-by-numbers analogy comes in. He gives us a list of different types of needs through each verse. First he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first thing we need to be honest about is our greatest need. And that's our need for God to fix this world. You see, the vast majority of our needs come from the fact that this world is a broken place. That human sin has corrupted our relationships with one another and has made the world a bad place to live. And all of the three statements that are given here are pointed in that direction. We tend to think hallowed be your name connects with our Father in heaven just because of the way the cadence of the of the sermon or the the prayer flows. But actually, I think hallowed be your name connects with the second and third clause in this. Hallowed means glorified. It means God, we want your name to be lifted high, set apart, made holy in this world. God, we want your kingdom to come. God, we want people to be doing your will in this world just like it's done in heaven. I think all three of these things point towards the fact that our ultimate need is for God to break into this world and to change it. We need desperately a world in which people worship God. We desperately need a world in which the interactions between people are like God's kingdom, not Satan's kingdom. We desperately need a world in which people are following God's will rather than their own. The first prayer he tells us to pray, the first honesty about our needs, is just to say, God, before anything else, I need you to be acting in this world and to be making it a better place. I need you to come and rescue us from sin. The second need that he tells us to be honest about is for our need for provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Each and every one of us ultimately is a beggar. 
If anybody here thinks that they've earned their wealth, earned their provision, it's a lie. We have to work for it, certainly. But ultimately, each and every one of us depends on our health, depends on our context, depends on the many doors that God opens for us. Each and every one of us needs to realize we have to turn back to God and say, God, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't even have enough bread to eat for the day. This is a good prayer, especially in a, in a country in which we are so rich. It's good to be reminded that we should be coming back to God and asking him, would you give me enough bread to eat? And like it says in First Timothy, part of that prayer might even be to say, God, help me to be content with what you've given us. The next need that he talks about is forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. We have to be honest about the fact that we fall short of God's standards, that we are beholden to people in our lives and we are beholden to God. And we have to be honest enough to come before him and say, God, forgive me. I've messed up. Here's the ways that I haven't been living up to your standard recently. The next need is protection. We say, God, would you protect us from temptation and deliver us from evil. We're in a war, guys. The, 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 the world that the Bible paints for us is not a world in which we are nice, happy coasters. The world is that we are warriors who are always under assault from Satan, the enemy, who wants to defeat God's kingdom. And it is essential that we recognize that ultimately only God can beat the temptations that we face and save us from Satan making a mess of our lives. If we want freedom from the various things we struggle with in this life, whether it's people who are attacking us personally, whether it's circumstances that are beating us down, whether you're, you're wrestling with the fact that you yourself aren't good enough and you're dealing with a tremendous guilt in all of those things, we have to cry out to God and say, help me. Satan's trying to get me right now. I need your protection. I see so many people who wrestle with trying to be righteous without prayer. I think it has to be a futile effort, ultimately. Surely, without God protecting us spiritually, we'll never take another step forward. God wants us to be honest about our needs. And like a good father, he's eagerly waiting to meet them. All of these things don't necessarily sound fatherly, but when you stop and think about them, they're actually all things that a good father should be doing. How are we to pray? Ultimately, we're to pray like little children who don't hold back the things that they know they need. A good father loves to make the world a better place for his kids. A good father loves to provide for his children. A good father loves to forgive his children when they've wronged him and to bring them back into relationship with him. A good father will go to war to protect his kids when they're under attack. God tells us, be honest about your needs. Like little children, just come and ask me 
and I will meet your needs. When it comes to this part of praying, being honest about our needs, I think this is where we get to have the most flex. Some of these resonate deeply all the time. Some of these, not so much. I think we need to be conscious of the fact that at different points in life, we're going to see some of these more acutely. For me in Cambridge, the thing that I was praying most was that God would provide my daily bread. We moved to another city. I was wrapping up some school. We had a limited amount of OSAP and student loans left. And we knew that was a ticking time bomb. At some point, that was going to run out, and we had nothing left in the tank to keep on moving forward. And so as the year went on, I moved from praying, God, would you let me have a ministry job to fulfill my sense of purpose and to let me do great things in the world or whatever else my illusions were that it was about. Coming to a place of just saying, okay, God, I think you've called me to ministry and I need you to do something so that I can pay the bills while I'm doing it. (laughs) Please, God, open that up. And again, that took a while. We got to the point where we were right at our last... (laughs) I I think the last cent sometimes it was pretty close. And then God opened up doors right when we needed it. We said, okay, God, we trust you to provide. And he did. He did. I'd love to fill that story in a little bit more for you. Coming back from Cambridge, being here now, having a pretty steady salary, I'd say the one that actually resonates with me the most is forgive us our debts. Not just in the sense of needing forgiveness for sin, though every day I'm reminded of how far I fall short. But I think there's also just a real-life application of this, of saying, hey, I'm now carrying a lot of student debt. God, I need you to help me pay that off and or take it away, one way or the other. One of the biggest challenges in our current life is knowing if it wasn't for God's provision daily, then... We couldn't even survive. So then how are we going to add the challenge of paying off the debt long term? That's being honest. Saying, God, thank you. I really do believe you're providing for my daily bread right now. Now could you help forgive my debts? Let me be the type of person who forgives others too. Don't be afraid to use this as a paint by numbers. If you want to spend some time with God in the morning, don't be afraid to go through and say, okay, God, Here's the ones that are sticking with me right now. I need you to do this in my life. How are we to pray? First, we're supposed to pray honestly about ourselves. We're supposed to be honest about who God is as our Father. And we're supposed to be honest about our needs. The last thing I think is pointed at in the last portion of this section, verses 14 and 15, that's that we need to be honest with one another as well. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus is alluding back to that statement in the middle of the prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, the people who owe us something. And Jesus says, you can't expect God to answer this prayer. You can't expect him to forgive you and to meet your needs 
unless you're willing to do so to others as well. Unless you're willing to be the type of people who recognize if I'm accepted unconditionally, even though I'm not good enough, I need to do that as well to others. All Jesus is really doing is taking the gospel and extending it, not just to my own life, but to the community that I'm in. I believe that when we're willing to be the kind of people who are honest about the ways people have hurt us and our need to forgive them, honest about the fact that God's forgiveness of us means we can't do anything but forgive somebody else, honest about the fact that God meets our needs and we should then meet others' needs in every way, then we're going to miss one of the most important components of prayer. Prayer is meant to mold us and shape us and make us the kind of people who live out the very thing we prayed for at the beginning of the prayer, that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done. That prayer has to apply to us first. It's a dangerous prayer. It's going to stretch us. It's going to make us uncomfortable. But I think Jesus gives us no choice. We have to be honest about the expectations he has of us when we're praying. You know, I think my time in Cambridge, one of the things I had was very little in the way of community around me. It was a bit of a bubble that God took us on just to learn as a couple. But where I've learned this part, coming back, the importance of meeting each other's needs and being honest in terms of God's expectations, is here at Auburn. One of the great joys I've had is to be part of a men's prayer group that meets on Tuesday mornings. We meet every, every Tuesday at 7, which for some is a bit of a stretch to get up then. And we're honest with each other. We talk about the things that we need, the things that we see that are needed in this church, and we, we pray. One of the best parts about the group is we try and spend more time praying than talking, which I think is fantastic. It's often the other way around. And it's really pressed on me how good it is to be able to pray with people and to be honest with people and to to try and become the kind of community where this is lived out, where we're extending all these prayer needs to other people as well. I think this is something that grips all of the leaders in the church. It's something we've been realizing the last while. If we want a healthy community, we've got to be doing this. Brings us right back to that commandment in James that says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. You see, we've been talking about what it means to cultivate a community of belonging here at Auburn, a place where anybody can know they are accepted and belong for who they are so that they can experience God's transforming love. Last week, Brent talked about the need to proclaim God's word and talk about how good God is and how much he does for us and ultimately how deep the gospel runs. And flowing right from that, I think, is the fact that we need to be a praying community. We need to be the type of community that is praying in our closets, honestly, honest about who we are, who God is, what our needs are, and then coming together with one another and praying for one another 
and living out the things that we're asking God to do. So our second key to go alongside proclaiming God's word is praying honestly. I hope that that's something that can really become part of our cultural fabric here over the months and years to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you respond to us, that like a loving father, you are just waiting for us to ask so you can meet our needs. And I pray that you would make us into the type of community that values prayer enough to do it regularly, individually, and corporately. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.